The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to The Art of Impeccable Soul Care, bridging ancient wisdom and modern teachings to raise your vibration and elevate your life. I'm your host, Terry Williams. Let's rise to new heights together on mindbodyspirit.fm. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome wherever you are in the world to another day on earth. Today, I'm going to open with a Zen moment inspired by my guest, Waylon Lewis. Uh, Waylon is the founder of the Elephant Journal. He is an author. He is a speaker. Uh, Elephant Journal is a phenomenal online publication. I think of more so as an online community. And I feel like right now, more than ever, we can benefit from it. Um, So let's just kind of sit up straight, check in our posture, and with a joyful, relaxed, brave posture, take a deep breath. Relaxing into the now. Shoulders back. Take another breath. A little bit more relaxed. And bow with an offering of mutual respect and friendliness. So the first time that I heard you say that, offer that breath and that bow of mutual respect and friendliness was the first time I ever heard it presented in that way. And it was so powerful, obviously, and so beautiful. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I love it. I practice it myself. We do it in our staff meetings, you know, before meals. It's, it's wonderful to have a little opening and a closing in our busy, speedy lives. Yeah. So um, I'm going to rewind just a little bit here. I, mean, I already shared that you are the founder of The Elephant Journal. You're also an author, which I'm really excited to talk about uh, the two bit books, particularly your latest one. And you practice Buddhism. You've been enmeshed in it since your childhood, but really had an awakening moment yourself. Uh, I read like through a college class or, or something along those lines. So let's talk about that. Share a little bit with us about it. Sure. Yeah. I actually grew up right where I am now in Boulder, Colorado, not this house, but close by. I always say I haven't gone far in life. And um, there's a big burgeoning kind of wild Buddhist scene. Uh, My parents were part of that and everyone was meditating and 
doing meditation and action practices like flower arranging or um, archery in the sort of Zen or Buddhist tradition and studying. And uh, so I grew up as a kid in that. So I loved that whole world. It was a wonderful, uh, kind, fun world to grow up in. Um, But, you know, whenever you grow up in some sort of religion or some sort of world, you also want to get out and find the actual world out there and explore. And, and I certainly did that. And then, yeah, I think it took, it was various steps where I kind of discovered Buddhism on my own terms. But, you know, when I went to college the first year in Boston uh, for journalism, Boston University, I was very excited. It was a big city. I wanted to party and have fun. And what I encountered was a lot of like um, loneliness. Um, I had friends, we were partying, but there was a level, it just didn't feel genuine often. And I felt this overwhelming loneliness and I would go back on any college break to Vermont where I had lived for the years before that this Buddhist center. And for the first time, I think because of that loneliness and sort of becoming an adult, I practiced meditation as instructed, which is you're supposed to practice as if your hair is on fire. You're supposed to practice like you really mean it, like it's urgent. And, and that focus and that loneliness combined to, you know, I remember walking out of a, um, I think it was a Buddhist seminar, Shambhala Buddhist seminar, and looking at the, the pond and the flowers and the trees and everything, the sky, and it just, you know, having that moment of being like, wow, is this the world that's always here? I was yeah. so present. And normally we're not that present. We think we kind of are, but we're just mostly present with a lot of stuff up here. Yeah. You know, our brain going. Pum, pum, pum. Yeah. So yeah, that was sort of my path in the beginning. I just discovered it in a very personal way. And, and yeah, I wouldn't claim any sort of fundamental awakening, but I had a lot of moments of waking up. Mm-hmm which also was aided earlier by a high school class that was about like Emerson and Thoreau and all these folks. And they had studied Hinduism and Buddhism and it all kind of came full circle. And I remember very kind of egotistically and naively and sort of sweetly in retrospect thinking, Oh, this reminds me of some of this Buddhist crap. I I surrounded by all the time. (laughs) Maybe there's something to this Buddhism after all. It was very Mm -hmm. condescending. And then I checked out the Buddhism and I was like, wow, this is actually intellectually fascinating. It's not just meditating, which seemed really boring as a teenager. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good philosophy or view that actually directly applies to my life, which is rather surprising Mm -hmm. or was. I think if more people were open to uh, digging a little bit deeper into those traditions that they would find the relevance to today's modern times, especially with all the chaos that we're going through, right? And that the opportunity it gives us individually and collectively to to walk a different way, right? And to maybe slow down the stuff that's going on in our brains and the the distractions of social media and 
and, you know, kids and neighbors and family and businesses and all of that other stuff. But if they really slowed down for a minute and looked at it like you did and said, okay, maybe there is something to this and that there's a reason that people go back to it and that those teachings have crossed the pond, so to speak, come to the West for us here to really connect with. So I think that's really beautiful. And one of the other things that I really found inspiring about your story, your life, is that, yes, you were entrenched in in Buddhism and open to new ways, but you also tried things uh, like Shambhala and other things that you were involved with that you got let go of. And then you kind of created your own story and your own space of being able to build that community and also share the inspiration of who you are, which is so powerful for anybody that feels like they are a failure, but they're really not. They're, they just need to go go another step, right? So right. that's inspiring. I, I love that piece of of your life experiences and how you're sharing them in the community. Yeah, I think when I was growing up, I loved writing and journalism. And my father was a journalist and my mom was various things. She taught English and history and Shakespeare and composition and all that and at Naropa University and other places. And But yeah, I wanted to figure out a way to make a living, number one, because, you know, my mom and I grew up very, very poor and I saw how hard that was on mm-hmm. her. Um, and at the same time, our life was incredibly cheerful and rich in yeah. other ways. But in practical ways, I saw how hard it could be for her. Um, seeing her crying, you know, at Christmas because she couldn't afford any presents, let alone food sometimes, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I wanted to find a way to make a living. And that was a bit of a mystery to me. You know, how as a writer can you make a living? So, you know, I partially thought, well, let's make a big community of writers and let's try to figure out how to pay all of us. So that's been part of the dream with Elephant. And um, and then number two, I think, you know, I always anticipated that I would grow up and mentor and, and take over or at least help with one of the Buddhist publications or publishing companies or whatever. But what I ran into was a whole bunch of, you know, kind of institutional kind of lack of mentorship. People really were happily ensconced in what they were doing and didn't particularly want to mentor the next generation. So it was natural, you know, uh, I grew up without a father. It was natural to just want to be my own boss and not have to work for all these old, wonderful, but old men and just start my own thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been, it's been hard and fun and long. We turned 20 years old elephant this summer. Mm. Yeah, it has. Well, as someone who has gained a lot from the elephant community, I'm really glad you're, you've stayed and that you continue to find new ways to inspire people, you know, to, to ignite their passion. You know, something I wrote down um, was, one of your quotes on art. I just have to find it here because I really loved how you said it. Um, Well, I'm not going to find it now because I don't know what I did with it. 
anyway, but it was really about art being um, more, not just, uh, not just artistic in the way that people would think like the photo behind you or the piece hanging on my wall or my drum, but really the expression of who you are in a way that does inspire people. And so when I think about the elephant community, that's what I think about. You know, it is this creative piece. It's your creative piece that you have invited in many different people to share their creative spark and to ignite others. And I really appreciate that you stayed with it for 20 years because as we were talking a bit before the show, it's not always easy. And this last two years has made it very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy sometimes for sure, but even when it's easy, success is very difficult too. I've had a lot of success and that's been just as hard in different ways as times of, you know, constriction or, or difficulty, but yeah, the piece about art is basically, again, you know, anything I ever say, if it's helpful, and I mean this genuinely, not humbly, really, mm -hmm. I mean it genuinely, came from my study and practice of the Dharma. Like, they're not, I really encourage people to go to the source, and, and I do that in my new book as well. But the notion that art is about um, kind of being genuine, expressing something genuine instead of being meant to be something for performance or display yeah, was powerful. It's not that you can't display it or perform it. That's beautiful, but that is ro not rooted in um, the purpose of it is simply to express something genuine and that power, which we see in beautiful dance or we enjoy in a beautiful film or we read, you know, we, we read a good book and we connect with that story is just the human experience and i think that's what elephant at its best does is it's just i talk about catharsis a lot that feeling when you're for days or weeks or months you're caught up in something and then mm -hmm. you sit down and you write just what's going on mm -hmm. without trying to make it pretty or wise you just write what's going on and maybe you have a little bit of a view that you want to as they say in Buddhism, you want to open the flower outward. So you want to write what's going on in a way that's accessible for others. And the power of just being honest about your own experience and then allowing others to enjoy that vulnerability and feel their own and is so inspiring for others. And that's a magical, you know, process that I just, I will never stop doing that until I die. And, you know, I don't, even with all of our difficulties, Elephant will continue to do that with all of our writers and editors and staff uh, for, for years to come. I have no intention to stop. I mean, I wrote a new article today. It's, it's a real privilege and, and pleasure to get to do it. Mm -hmm. mm. To me, the way that you worded that is the essence of soul care. Right. So when I, with the name of the show, Impeccable Soul Care, the way that you just fully expressed it is impeccable soul care. It's w whatever your vision of a soul is, you know, that's not the, that's not the main message. Um, it's connecting within yourself, 
and being able to share that light. And I think that's so beautiful how you um, expressed that. It was very powerful. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to reading what you wrote today. So we're going to take a break in a minute. But before we do that, I want to mention the two books um, that you've written. And that's what we'll talk about when we come back. Things I would like to do with you. Uh, Listeners, you can't really see it, but I have a lot of tabs on here of pieces that spoke to me. And I read the book. I loved it. My daughter is getting married in next next May, and I bought the book and your newest book, It's Never Too Late to Fall in Love with Your Life. I have a few tabs already Aww. here. I'm going to give both, both of these to them as a wedding present. There were pieces and things I would like to do with you that I sobbed through because they really resonated with me. And I'm sure that they resonated with many people. And the second book, It's Never Too Late to Fall in Love with Your Life, equally is powerful. I found myself wanting to go through it really fast and devour it because I found it so juicy. And yet I wanted to savor so much of it. And I feel like Anybody that picks up this book is going to feel that and yet still want to be able to, as you suggest, um, take it one day at a time and just allow yourself to let it percolate with you. So let's take a break and we'll come right back and talk about that. Hey, so welcome back, listeners. Um, I'm having a conversation today on one of my favorite topics, soul care, and I'm chatting with Waylon Lewis of The Elephant Journal. We're going to talk about his latest book, It's Never Too Late to Fall in Love with Your Life. Uh, I do want to mention that Things I Would Like to Do with You, his first book. Uh, Waylon, I think that every couple should read that before they write their vows. Mm. Yes, yeah, over the years, including recently, I mean, it just keeps going. I've heard from so many couples who have taken a paragraph or two and you actually used it in their vows, like a poem or something, um, yeah. which obviously is incredibly gratifying. Yeah. Sort of well, surprising. I, I zipped through it again, and um, two of the... Two of the chapters that really spoke to me, um, the first the first chapter is really powerful. I sobbed through it, you know. And then um, chapter five, which is things I would like to do with you before I lose you. That, as I'm reading it, I was thinking about my future son-in-law. And I thought, wow, he needs to read this. And he could do exactly that. Take pieces of it and include in his vows to my daughter. So thank you for that. And I'll let you know how it goes. Um, And let's talk about it's never too late to fall in love with your life. Yeah. So this is uh, my second book. Um, It's always intimidating uh, or, or strange or something to follow up one's one hit wonder kind of because things, you know, was a very romantic 
book, but also a romantic process. It just started off as I wrote the first chapter somewhat spontaneously and published it on Elephant like any old blog or article. And the reaction to it was 100% positive, which Mm -hmm. for those of you who know the internet is something that does not happen usually. Um, If ever, I've published thousands of articles and almost never had 100%, you know, not only people approving of it generally, but really feeling it. So it touched a nerve that I think, you know, in our evolving kind of relationship, commitment, loneliness, marriage, our views of these things are evolving so quickly. And yet there hasn't been a lot of change in our, our institutions. You know, we Mm -hmm. still view marriage as this thing to spend a hundred thousand dollars plus on or whatever, if you can, and it should be very happy. And there's tons of pressure and tons of, you know, and divorce, although it's much more accepted, thankfully is still, I think, viewed as a failure of some sort. Mm-hmm. Engagement, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stress in all of these things, and yeah. things is really just the Buddhist notion of relationships. And I wrote about it in view of my own wanting to settle down and have children and all that. And I had no idea, kind of, I had a lot of ideas, but I had no real clear idea what to look for in a partner. Mm-hmm. And so that book was a process of going through my experiences and holding them up against the Dharma or Buddhism. And the one of the coolest things throughout the book, there's quotes from non-Buddhist people. One of the coolest things was discovering that, you know, Buddhism really doesn't own anything here. It's expressed a good path in terms of relationship, but that this wisdom is expressed in almost every tradition uh, and every time period in, in the world. And there's something universal about it, but it's still kind of a little hidden and you don't see it reflected in Hallmark movies or a lot of rom-coms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And so, and that book did very well as the, we published it independently in eco. So we weren't in bookstores around the country, but we sold it through elephant sold, you know, I think more than 28,000 copies, which is good for even a conventional book. It's not amazing, but it's, you know, not a cheap book. It's a gift book. So it's pretty darn good. And um, the one bookstore we've been available in a huge independent bookstore, Boulder bookstore here in Boulder. Um, the owner told me it was the best selling book in their history. Wow. That's more than, you know, Michelle Obama or whatever, Oprah. Wow. So that was, I, I'm now looking at publishing it nationally for the first time and we'll see how that goes. So then the second book, I really just, I think I did a good job in avoiding the kind of comparing it to the first book experience. I really just, you know, I really hewed to what, what do I want to actually write? So Mm -hmm. I, it's, I should have titled it something like if I get run over by a a bus tomorrow, this is everything that's been helpful to me. That's the real title of that book. It's really just all the Buddhist stuff or stuff I learned from my mom or environmental stuff or activism stuff, all of it kind of boiled down in the tradition in Buddhism. There's a thing called Mojang cards, mind training, and they're just mm-hmm. cards and you read one a day or one a week or whatever mm-hmm. your pace is. And there's commentary on the back. So that's exactly what the book is. And we're actually going to make a card set around the book that is a quote and then commentary on the back. And you can just read one a day. I think. I love to, that. Yeah. It's not meant to be. 
I think it's a little bit like eating like fiber or something like you mm-hmm. can eat two or three or four or five, but it's pretty dense. It's yeah. not really a book to curl up with. Well, and I think that like me, um, initially you want to just right. devour it. And yet if you don't savor it, you don't really get the full impact of the wisdom of each element, you know, each of the 108 messages that you have to offer. I look at them and so many of them really spoke to me like, like number four, there's the sun inside all of us. Okay. One other thing that I want to say, I did not go through the whole book because as I said, I got like halfway through and then I thought I have to savor it. But each of the quotes is your original quote. Is that throughout the whole book? Oh yeah. I mean, I think the teachings or the ideas are, as I say in the introduction, are all, you know, from mentors or my mom or Buddhism or whatever, but they're, they're how I would express them or write them or. Yeah. And how you interpret it, which I thought was really amazing. And, you know, prior you and I talked about the changes in the world and the things that are happening. And one of the things that, that I like to focus on myself is friendliness and compassion. And so when I opened it up to the second one um, about, is that Maitri, M-A-I-T-R-I? How do you pronounce that? Oh, Maitri. Maitri. Yeah. Maitri. Yes. And I I loved that it, the last line of your original quote is how to take care of yourself. And yet it's un- unconditional friendliness towards yourself. It's simple and it is hard. Yeah. It is so hard at the same time. Yeah. It's not complicated. It's super simple. I can explain it very directly and succinctly. And it's a lifelong process that never ends. Yeah. That takes bravery and takes vulnerability at the same time. And words can't do it for you. You actually have to do it. Yeah. I I like the end of that. It says, and you always have a choice. Avoid your reality or relax into now with a sigh, as if sinking into a slightly too hot bath. Okay, I just have to say, um, there's a video going around Instagram, and it's a mom, and she asks her daughter a question. Her daughter's got like a rubber ducky on her eyebrow, on her eyes, and she's laying in a bathtub, but she asks her daughter, what is she doing? And she said, I'm self-caring. And so oh. when I, I when I read this, I'm like, and she's in a hot bathtub, and I'm like, yeah, like taking care of yourself in a perfectly tempered bath, right? Okay. Just give yourself that unconditional love and respect. Um, uh, the things that I've seen you teach and you open with that bow of mutual respect and love and seeing it within yourself too. Um, and I liked the next one too. Right now, Sit up straight, take your best posture and breathe, relax, do it. Take a deep breath in, pause, breathe out, pause, enjoy your breath. 
Now is a good place to be. And the last line on that particular message is our world needs you to be kind to yourself. Mm. When we're, I feel like when we're kind to ourselves, that's how we can radiate out that kindness out to everybody else. Yeah, it's the only way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do you have a couple favorites that you can share off the top of your head? Um, yeah, I should have the book with me. But um, I mean, my tree is definitely, I don't know if my favorites are based on like what I wrote or the principles that I want people to grok, that I, yeah. the principles I want people to take away. So I think my tree is a big one. I think the notion of my tree is so far beyond self-care and you just expressed it. So self-care is um, a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but my tree is being kind to yourself, making a friendship with yourself. Yeah. And I often describe it as if you ever feel intimidated or lonely or out of place or awkward when you go to a big party by yourself, then think about going to that big party with your best friend in the whole world. And it doesn't really matter if you know anyone, you get way more brave and outgoing, or you're totally happy to be a wallflower and just find your fun in the moment. And that's what having a developed sense of my tree is like. You're always with your best friend, which is yourself. Mm. So there's a real empowering quality to it that then has to lead to something self-care doesn't always lead to. It has to leave, lead to empathy. So if your self-care is about, you know, speeding in your SUV to get to yoga and you're honking at people and you're drinking, you know, your $12 juice out of plastic and then throwing it away and it winds up in a whale's tummy. And, you know, if, if our self-care doesn't lead to caring, caring is the most important word in my view in the whole English language. If it doesn't lead to caring, um, I think that's actually one of the quotes if your our sense of spirituality or our practice doesn't lead to caring, we're doing something wrong. Yeah, we're, something's missing, and it's fun to care. I just did a video about like zero waste grocery shopping on a bike here in Boulder with my friend uh, Ryan Van Duzer on YouTube, and you know it's all about caring about plastic and caring about supporting local business and caring about organic and, you know, all these things. And it's easy to make fun of that stuff. And it, I think it's fine to make fun of that stuff. We should have a sense of humor about what we love, but it's also helpful and important to care and it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the whole book is just self-care hopefully leads to empowerment to then care about the whole world and then being willing to feel both brokenheartedness and joy because your heart's open. So you're going to feel both. Yeah. And we have certainly over the course of the last couple of years experienced this roller coaster. If, if you, if you practice an element of true caring, you can't, could not have helped, but feel that roller coaster of, Mm. of, you know, loss and joy all at the same time we can save that for another conversation because I think about how the planet was able to heal those first few mo- months of the, the pandemic and what a difference that made. Right. So we'll, we definitely have to have that conversation again. And, and that, so this is a good time for me to read this one. This is number 17 
As human beings, we all experience suffering. Some of us experience depression and trauma. Nevertheless, we all retain a foundational, unconditional, so ordinary it's easy to overlook goodness. And I think that that's what you're saying. True caring is goodness. Mm-hmm. For sure. And the reverse, obviously. Goodness is caring. Yes. So in, in Buddhism, they say, they talk about basic goodness and in Shambhala, uh, by Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior is a book people could read, or Pema Chodron, I recommend in the book. Yeah. Um, these are wonderful teachers who are far, 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 like, I'm not even, you know, in their world, but I am students of them. And as I write in the beginning of the book, sometimes I actually think it's helpful to hear from people who are also on the path, not just yeah. masters, because we have a whole culture of like, well, they can do it, but... I'm, I'm not worthy. I, they're different. Right. And I think that's unhealthy too. But yeah, in Trungpa Rinpoche talks about like the quality of, and it's before thought. It happens before you even think about it. If you see someone, and excuse the awful, cruel analogy, but if you see someone kick a puppy, almost everyone, conservative, liberal, whatever is going on, rich, poor, you know, any kind of background, uh, would feel a pre-thought level of, of, oh my God, what's happening? That's awful. Let me help. Let me stop that. And that's, um, that's just caring. And yeah. caring can lead to activism, to fight injustice. Caring can lead to kindness and working, say, in a hospital or being a nurse or a teacher. Caring can go all kinds of places and they're all good. But a lot of us try spend our lives trying to close ourselves off to caring. Because caring can hurt. And um, so I, I also write about the cocoon, the notion of cocoon, which is also in Shambhala or Buddhism, which is we, we want to surround ourselves with air conditioning, you know, take off the jacket, put on the jacket. We want the heat on when we want it. We want, we want to adjust everything all the time so everything's comfortable. Um, we want to watch our Netflix and have our ice cream. And like our whole goal in life is to insulate ourselves from anything uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, and I'm sympathetic toward that because I love curling up with blankets and being cozy. So that's not a bad thing inherently, but if it goes on for too long, it leads to us pushing away the homeless or pushing away the elderly or the, yeah. the sick or, or people who are say immigrants or, you know, it leads to a lot of like what I call gated community spirituality, which mm-hmm. is, not healthy for us and definitely not healthy for the world. And it's not fun either. Like what happened to all the joy? So yeah, I don't know what I'm blabbering about, but. There's a lot of joy in caring, right? There is a lot of joy in, in caring. And that for me, the, what, what I hear you saying is that the way to elevate the planet to step into impeccable soul care, right? Mm -hmm. The way to elevation is through a deep, caring. And through that caring, you are going to feel uncomfortable. You are also going to experience profound joy. Exactly. I mean, it's both, right? And the way yes. we the way we stay away from that is the cocoon or being speedy, you know, never allowing a gap. Right. Um, so, we, you know, we fill the gap with our phone. We fill the gap with our fidgeting. We fill the gap with whatever entertainment we can the gap is the notion that you're doing something and then there's a gap. 
Yeah. And then you do something else and then there's a gap. There's even gaps within doing those things. But our ego, you know, gaps are scary. It's like yeah. if we stopped talking for a minute and just stared at each other, that would be uncomfortable. It would probably be joyful and it would be vulnerable and it would be brave. Mm-hmm. That's something they actually recommend. New York Times has those like 18 steps to fall in love with anyone. It's not even a romantic love. And that's a fundamental one. So embracing the gap, even within our speech, leads to a lot of good things, including that soul care, that self-care, that Maitri. The Maitri. I love that word, Maitri. I may refer to that word often over the course of the next week or so. Um, Well, we're we're basically down to the wire here. So two things I want to say. Thank you so much for creating Elephant Journal, for creating Elephant Academy, for creating all of the things, your books, um, for sharing your, your light, your inspiration. And I also want to say to you, thank you for being one of those people who thinks he's not up here with, you know, Pema children and allowing all of us to see that we are achievable. We don't have to shave our heads, that we can walk this way as part of our regular life. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, anything you want to leave the listeners with? You can get the book on elephant at our shop. There's like an eco shop and we ship plastic free and the, I should do a little plug for the book. It's like literally the greenest book in, in the world. I think, um, you, the inks are made out of algae, which is carbon sucking. There's no petroleum in the inks. That's a very rare thing was developed by Patagonia and others. There's no plastic coating. It's a super carbon negative book. And um, we put a lot of love into, you know, printing it locally, helping pay people's like Christmas bonuses and create good jobs. And the whole book hopefully feels like a, like it walks its talk, which is the name of our podcast and video series at Elephant. It was actually one of the things that I absolutely loved about Mm. this. And it feels so good to give it as a gift, knowing that I'm not just sharing a little bit of my tree love with people, but also knowing that I'm doing something that supports the planet in a good way. So I'm glad to hear that. All right. Well, Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to reconnecting and doing this again. Thank you so much. Listeners, grab the book, visit elephantjournal.com, Elephant Academy. All the links will be here on the page at mindbodyspirit.fm. Thanks again. Hey, this is your host, Terry Williams. Thanks for tuning in to The Art of Impeccable Soul Care, bridging ancient wisdom and modern teachings to raise your vibration and elevate your life. For more information or to work with me, visit soulpractices.com and subscribe to my tribe. You'll be the first to hear about upcoming guests and workshops, free resources, and so much more. Until next time, thanks again. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. 
It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.